It is a day called X, 1957, and a Soviet bomber, armed with five megaton nuclear H-bombs, has Portland in its crosshairs. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, part two in our examination of civil defense in Portland, Oregon. In 1957, a curious cinematic occurrence took place in Portland, like an ICBM being vaulted over the pole. CBS Television decided to film a documentary about civil defense in Portland. Filmed at numerous locations across the city for several weeks in September, it aired on December 8, 1957, and copies were distributed to CD offices across the nation. Glenn Ford was the narrator and did an admirable job of setting the scene. Harry Rasky, a Canadian director, was in charge of the film. While not a household name, later in life he did receive some acclaim for his work. Rasky's style of documentary making was so distinctive, his works were often called Raskimentaries. He has been regarded as one of the two or three most important Canadian film documentary directors who ever worked. If you do have to work with a Canadian, it's best to work with their finest, or their second or third finest. He was pretty good. Historian Doug Kank Crispin. To call the film a documentary might be stretching reality a bit, but there are indeed real live city officials and police officers in the film. Aside from the narrator, there are no real Hollywood actors in the feature. That is, if one actually refers to Glenn Ford with such a moniker. Rasky had stated that our problem was to take a dull subject and dramatize it. While imminent nuclear annihilation may seem a little less than a dull subject, Portlanders had been through the drill enough times and had indeed mastered the drill that it was quite a dull subject to them. Getting Portlanders into cars in a swift yet orderly fashion and having them robotically drive to the reception areas in Newburgh, Malala, and Camby just doesn't make for the most exciting television. (laughs) 
this was no The Day After, the 1983 nuclear holocaust film that as kids scared the fuck out of us in Oregon history. But A Day Called X was so realistic to viewers of the time, perhaps suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from the Operation Greenlight exercise, that the Oregonian city desk was flooded with panicked phone calls. I got so much trouble on my mind, refuse to lose. Here's your ticket, hear the drama get wicked. The crew to you to push the back to black attack. So I sat in Japanese. These calls, despite the fact that a slide stating an attack is not taking place, was superimposed over Mayor Terry Shrunk's face every time the mayor opened his mouth. Viewing the film, and we do highly recommend it, one will see Portland's Civil Defense Emergency Operations Center at Kelly Butte, as it was officially termed, or The Bunker, as we at Oregon History call it. And it was quite a construction. Not quite on the level of Hitler's bunker under Berlin, as much as we would love to make the comparison, but formidable and operational nonetheless. In A Day Called X, one does get a good view of the facility, so we would, again, urge you to consider viewing the selection. When it was first built in 1955 to 1956, Portland was the only city in the United States to have such a fortification. By 1960, a few other municipalities had followed suit, but Portland's bunker was still the largest, allowing our city's fathers to continue to accurately proclaim Mine is bigger than yours. The dedication was a considerable production, as the guest list included governors from Oregon, Washington, and California, and the mayors and civil defense directors in all of the West Coast target areas. Val Peterson, the real live federal civil defense administrator, was billed to perform the bunker's official dedication. The primary purpose of this facility was to prevent the dissolution of city government during a catastrophic crisis and to provide a communications and leadership headquarters for a myriad of potential calamities and mischances, the looming Soviet nuke being the granddaddy of them all, of course. The structure was buried in the hillside of Kelly Butte at varying depths due to the slope of the geography of 10 to 30 feet. Shaped much like a Quonset hut, the walls were of reinforced concrete, 26 inches thick. A huge steel door enclosed the headquarters, and a closed-circuit television was utilized to verify the identity of anyone approaching the bunker. The communications equipment was impressive at Kelly Butte. Broadcasting capabilities were present in the bunker itself to newscast the dire situation to Portlanders, or at least those Portlanders who were still alive and hadn't been consumed by the mutant squirrels that had developed from when the bomb dropped on Laurelhurst Park. In addition to housing the city council itself, civic leaders could converse with agencies including civil defense in Salem, police and fire services, as well as numerous other bureaus needed to operate a city the size of Portland engulfed in a nuclear holocaust. Highway officials had stations within the bunker in addition to the Health Bureau, the Warden Service, as well as other departments, and even the Weather Bureau and the Red Cross. Furthermore, the bunker had direct lines 
to Conrad, the national fortification system that would usurp local television and radio broadcasts. The emergency system would broadcast on 640 and 1240 kilocycles and would presumably give Portlanders the straight shit. The bunker also had a designated communication link to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. Greetings, Professor Bolton. Shall we play a game? With this direct line, city officials could plot the current position of Soviet bombers, streaming ever so quickly to the City of Roses, on the giant map that loomed menacingly over the staff in the operations center like a Bond villain's island redoubt. The bunker could accommodate 250 civic and emergency workers for up to two weeks in this troglodytic environment. Their families were not admitted and were presumed to have been relocated to the refugee camps, hopefully with all their teeth and hair. The bunker had stored food to serve in the little cafeteria and a large but spartan folding cot-filled room for rest. The bunker had its own water supply, purified air, and three 100-kilowatt generators to supply power. Copies of the city archives were kept on microfilm to preserve Portland history from the flames of annihilation. The structure was built and outfitted for about $600,000, a sizable sum in the 1950s. Federal funds paid for about half of the facility, and the state of Oregon ponied up a quarter. The final 150000 was delivered by the taxpayers through a special levy that was approved by voters in 1952. Today, you can see some graffiti-shamed concrete sticking out of a giant pile of rain-soaked mud up on Kelly Butte. That's all that's left. What the hell happened? Well, let's break it down and interpret the history a bit. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. In a relatively short period of time, the citizens of Portland seemed to tire of the civil defense exercises and ultimately of the expense associated with what many perceived to be a fool's errand. Which leaves us asking, why the sudden change? How did Portland voyage from the poster child of the CD movement, a striking example to the rest of the nation, to the apathetic, argumentative, bastard stepchild in just a few short years? Part of the answer to this question was the increasing lethality of these weapons. In a 1958 test, detailed on the front page of the Oregonian, a five-megaton bomb was pretend detonated at Southwest Broadway in Morrison, along with a simultaneous detonation of a one-megaton weapon at the airport. The resulting make-believe radioactive cloud moved up the Columbia River and reached Springdale in an hour. The imaginary lethal dose of 3,000 rentgens would have been fatal to anyone exposed and in the open within eight minutes. In this exercise, 120,000 Portlanders were killed outright, 88,000 were injured, and another 64,000 were sickened by the radiation. Where was the optimism for survival to be found in this example? I've got a 
Others, some influential, shared this skepticism. U.S. Representative Edith Green drew quite a bit of flack from Mayor Terry Schrunk when she wrote in a letter that civil defense against thermonuclear attack is a form of whistling in the graveyard on which I cannot justify spending millions that could be better spent elsewhere. The idea of civil defense as it is popularly understood is rapidly becoming an impossibility. In response to this letter, the mayor acknowledged that there were problems with the CD program, but he believed that Civil defense is an important part to any nation's power to resist aggression. My city police officers carry guns to deal with individuals to whom they cannot appeal to reason. In my opinion, nations must be in the same position. City Commissioner Stanley Earle took a step further in 1961 when he flat out refused to take part in a nationwide civil defense drill called OPAL 1961. Commissioner Earle stated... It is not based on the realities of 1961 and can only serve to lull the people into a false sense of security. Polaris missiles have a range of 1,500 miles with about three minutes delivery time. An ICBM fired from the Soviet Union would require a little over 20 minutes to be on target. Well, ooh, gonna put my face on a nuclear bomb. All them commies better get up and run When they let that sucker fly All the bad folks gonna die Gonna put my face on a nuclear bomb Jack Lowe, godfather of Portland civil defense, was unwilling to give up that easily. He consistently disputed the absolute doom forecast by the party poopers and tried to present his little bit less than absolute theory. He maintained in the midst of the debate that the chance of danger from fallout of radioactive particles in the dispersal throughout the state is slight. Every day we plot a fallout pattern which usually shows a plume of particles theoretically sifting down to the ground from the 50,000 foot level in a band 10 to 20 miles wide and extending about 150 miles to the northeast. Occasionally, it shifts to the southeast. But this fallout pattern hits only a small portion of our dispersal areas, and we could shift people out of this zone. Mayor Shrunk and Commissioner Earl conducted a televised debate on Portland's stance on civil defense, and they seemed to sum up the duality of opinions expressed at the time. On the one hand, to do nothing in the face of a nuclear attack was deemed philosophically unsound and morally reprehensible. While, on the other hand, civil defense is nothing. It is a fraud and a hoax. We'll let you decide who said what, dear ass kicker. I don't want no nuclear freeze. No funny looking skin disease. I don't want my face blowed apart. So the next time you see a coming might be somebody's mommy. Forget about them bombs and light a fart. Ultimately, the voters of Portland decided to not continue funding the city's foray into civil defense. And the city council followed suit, slashing the civil defense budget with a wide swath, jagged blade. 
The move was so abrupt, so discouraging, that the Pentagon sent a top Defense Department official to the City of Roses. But the decision seemed to settle once and for all, the argument of whether it was better to burst into flames on the corner of Sixth and Salmon, or watch your organs ooze out of your ears in a refugee camp on a Corbett blueberry farm. Gonna put my face on a nuclear bomb. All them commies better get up and run. When let that sucker fly, all bad folks gonna die. Gonna look my face on a nuclear bomb. Gonna put my face on a nuclear bomb. Gonna put my face. Lord, Mr. President, Mr. Ruski President, with the jelly stain on your head, don't be pushing the button. I don't wanna die. The civil defense challenges faced by the city of Portland today are no less deadly. Resident historian Doug Kent Crispin sat down with former mayor Sam Adams, while still in office, to discuss the challenges to the city of Portland today. This is Doug Kent Crispin, resident historian of Oregon history, and I'm sitting down with Portland's own kick-ass mayor, Mayor Sam Adams who has graciously agreed to talk with us today about civil defense. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mayor. It's my pleasure, and I think that I'll have that kick-ass, you know, part of the official title of the mayor of Portland from now on. Please feel free to bestow it. We give that to you Thank from you. Oregon History. I'm honored. In a day called X, Portland's Civil Defense Emergency Operations Center at Kelly Butte is featured. How would today's City of Portland services be administered in the fate of an imminent threat or a disaster? Well, um, not adequately is the short answer, and, and that's why we're building a new uh, emergency coordination center in East Portland um, near the uh, BOAC, the Bureau of Emergency Communications. And it's why I've been fighting for six and a half years as an elected official to get a west side staging area for emergency operations and basic supplies. Um, because the fact of the matter is, is that we've got, we've had no emergency staging uh, facility on the west side. And we haven't had one for, in modern times. You know, the old, uh, you know, Kelly Butte Civil Defense Command Center is, you know, was a, was a fine idea, but it's uh, far away, it's now uh, defunct. And what we need is the basic staging and the basic communication systems on both sides of the river. We see time and time again, there's the whatever natural disaster happens and we are imminent for an earthquake. And then there, there's the disaster that happens in the hours and minutes immediately after that, if you're not prepared. My worries though are the, the complexity of cities, the complexities of society are so much greater than they were in the 50s when a lot of the original civil defense um, preparation and exercise happened. The complexities now are so much greater just in the realm of communications, you know. Um, we've talked about, you know, do we, because of everybody's on different kinds of devices, you know, we can, we can do emergency interruption alerts on TV, but you can't do that on internet. So, you know, we have, you know, a huge percentage of Portland households who don't have landlines, so our reverse 911 doesn't reach them, and cell phones 
appropriately are private. And so we're working to get people signed up. So it's, you know, the big, you know, bomb dropped in the middle of Portland that wipes everybody out. You know, I hope that risk has been diminished. But the risks of rumors, the risks of much less um, deadly um, emergency situations or fears of emergency uh, events, uh, the complexities of dealing with even more minor ones, like inclement weather, those complexities are huge challenges to keeping people safe and keeping people calm. In your opinion, how prepared are we in Portland for something big, something bad happening? Well, you know, I, I think that um, compared to other cities, I think that we are better prepared. Um, you know, we've got a great team at the Portland Office of Emergency Management. I think that's typified by the fact that the bureau director asked the auditor to audit her, uh, her office and the operations of the city. That was before I became mayor, but I had the benefit, we had the benefit of the results of that audit, and we moved aggressive, aggressively to um, you know, deal with the shortcomings that, that the audit identified. Um, but also to go beyond that, you know, simple things, but important things like, um, you know, communications. So publicalerts.org, you know, you, you look at it. It's just a simple compendium of, uh, is that the right compendium? We'll go with it. It's just, you know, publicalerts.org is just a, you know, it's a simple website that all the links that one, um, that are available, that one would need to access in an emergency, either imminent or after the fact, they're there, we're now gonna take it to the next level in the next six months. Um, so I think we are reasonably prepared. We certainly devoted a lot of time to it and put ourselves under a lot of scrutiny to improve. I'm excited about what we've accomplished, but more excited about uh, what we're gonna be able to deliver in the next six months. On behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you for joining us today, Mr. Adams. It is my pleasure, what an honor. Thank you, sir. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. And I learned how to get along. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agreed that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. A special thanks today to former Mayor Sam Adams for his kick-ass interview. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. He swears the radiation sickness will wear off any day now. You stay historic, Oregon, and Kick ass. I used to cry. But now I hold my head up high and you see me.
and ICBM fired from the Soviet... Blah, 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 blah. ORhistory.com